0: welcome to episode 13 of the pharmacist matters podcast i'm your host justin bates today we have a special episode to talk about something that is very close to me having watched uh, one of my former colleagues and close friends struggle with diabetes type 2 diabetes throughout his life and as i watched helplessly as he slowly went through the process having a leg amputated and eventually uh, unfortunately passing and leaving this world too early it really struck me just how uh, impactful diabetes is in our country and in our world Um, one of the the good things that's come out of uh, this whole process was back in 1921 the breakthrough in medicine that truly revolutionized the way that the therapy and prognosis of diabetes is treated a Canadian of all uh, people Canadian born Frederick Banting uh, invented with the uh, team from University of Toronto and spearheading those research efforts to create uh, the first form of insulin. Um, 100 years later, here we are, and we've had a great opportunity at OPA to celebrate the 100 years of insulin. And I think it's really important that we talk about all of the evolution with treatment uh, and what people can do to better manage their, their diabetes. Today's podcast uh, is sponsored by Essentia uh, and BD, and we're very fortunate to be working very closely with the uh, pharmacy sector to continue to have these important conversations, uh, whether it's through diabetes management and other uh, chronic disease management. It really highlights and, and emphasizes the important role of the pharmacist and the pharmacy team in helping people manage their lives better through access to a community pharmacy. As a healthcare hub and protecting our communities and providing better access is what we do. So I'm delighted today to have two uh, great guests join us and talk about the 100 years of insulin and diabetes uh, in general. Um, I'm going to introduce uh, Susie Jin uh, first as a pharmacist, certified diabetes educator, certified fitter of compression therapy, and certified respiratory educator. She is based in the small town of Coburg, Ontario but is willing to travel. Susie is a co-author of Diabetes Canada Clinical Practice Guidelines for 2013 and 2018 and a member of the Dissemination and Implementation Committee of Diabetes Canada Clinical Practice Guidelines since 1998. Additionally, she also co-authored Wounds Canada Best Practice Recommendations and was a part of the development team for OPA's Professional Development Programs, Master Plan for Diabetes Continuing Education, comprehensive diabetes education, and the board certified geriatric pharmacist prep course. Over the last two years, Susie has been awarded two very prestigious national awards. The Charles H. Best Award, given to a healthcare professional who has made a significant difference across Canada towards improving the quality of life of individuals living with diabetes, and the Diabetes Canada Educator of the Year Award. We're also delighted to introduce Rob Roscoe, Rob is a pharmacist in Rothesay, New Brunswick, a certified diabetes educator, certified insulin pump trainer, and the owner of R2 Consulting. Rob has been involved in many diabetes initiatives, promoting the role of pharmacists and the part they play in patient care and diabetes management. Published in several papers and journals, he is one of the co-authors of the 2013 and 2018 CDA clinical practice guidelines. A leader in the diabetes healthcare space, Rob is active in the scientific committees and on advisory panels and boards. He is one of the founding board members of Forum for Injection Technique in Canada and a member of the Diabetes Task Force reporting to the Ministry of Health in New Brunswick. Rob was featured in a Discovery Channel special representing the pharmacist role in a patient's diabetes care team. Furthermore, he is a lead author in several accredited continuing medical education programs and has contributed to many other diabetes education programs for pharmacists and allied health professions. Rob has received several recognitions for his work, including the Atlantic Region CDA Outstanding Health Professional Award, Wyeth's Apothecary Award in 2008. In 2009, the Canadian Pharmacists Association named him as one of Canada's diabetes champions for Canadian pharmacists. And he was recently identified by Diabetes Canada as a healthcare provider honoree for the 100 year celebration to end diabetes. How appropriate, given that we're talking about the 100 years of insulin. So, with these distinguished guests, I really want to unpack just how critical this chronic disease is uh, and its impact to the healthcare system. You know, some of the stats that I went through in preparing for this podcast. Uh, really are uh, overwhelming in in a lot of ways, um, knowing that 29% of Canadians live with diabetes or pre-diabetes. The estimated direct cost to the healthcare system in 2020 was a staggering 3.8 billion. And I think when you look at just the other impacts that diabetes uh, has on individuals, you know, over three times more likely to be hospitalized with cardiovascular disease, and twelve times more likely to be hospitalized with end-stage renal disease. There's just so much that uh, this does to the healthcare system and individuals. And I want to start with Susie, just to get a, a sense of um, you know where where are we with respect to access and treatment, and your overall um, insight into you know are we are we getting a better handle on this, and, and what more can we do.
1: Thanks, Justin, for having both me and Rob on. We're actually colleagues and have worked um, together for, I don't know, probably 25 years. So Rob, excellent to have have both of us here. It's kind of nice with uh, Diabetes Canada when we do the volunteer work that way that we become colleagues and friends all across the nation. Um, So I'm just so excited to be here. But uh, Justin, excellent question. You know, we have come so far with the understanding of the management of both type 1 and type 2 diabetes everything from advances in technology um, helping with monitoring as well as injection and understanding rob is excellent and you can speak to volumes about injection technique so that even the agents that we have we now know how to use them better and then of course there's been newer understanding about the treatment so that medications that we would use for blood glucose lowering we now know that they actually also give cardiorenal protection so prevention against atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease chronic kidney disease and um, hospitalization for heart failure so we're just learning so much more about why are we taking certain agents and even when we achieve a1c target and the blood glucose targets, you know, we, we're actually still continuing on these medications because they're helping us um, prevent those, um, the, the cardiorenal prevention, as well as supporting weight management, which all helps with the metabolic control. But I think the other thing that we've also improved on or understood more of is the psychology of living with chronic disease. And that has helped us as educators help people because, you know, it's not like people didn't want to succeed and do well. And then, Justin, when you told us that story about your your good friend who has passed away, unfortunately, with a, several complications of diabetes, you know, it, it's so sad to hear that because, you know, it's, it, it's like, had we known what we know today, I, I'm sure your friend would have had better clinical outcomes had he had access to care. And there's an excellent point where we can, you know, toot our own horns. I feel like it's As pharmacists, we are the most healthcare accessible people. And when we get more and more involved in supporting people living with diabetes and increasing access to good quality care, people will have better clinical outcomes. So it's it's an exciting time for us as healthcare, as pharmacists, to be part of the person's diabetes healthcare team, to, to really make a difference. Um, I, I think the only sad thing that i can say about it is um even though we have all these advances we still don't have a cure for diabetes
0: that's a great jumping off point uh, when you talk about you know are we better managing this access to vital services and and just the the impact this has on everyone's lives who have experienced it and, you know when i think back to my a uh, friend who, you know, battled this his entire life, and it just slowly took him, uh, and it was so hard to watch. Um, and and you know, insulin certainly helped prolong his life, and and he managed it as best he could. But his last uh, decade uh, was just such a struggle. And you know, the it's 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 the diabetes and the impact that has, but it's also the all of the other. Uh, health conditions that come along with it um, that that ultimately took him, uh, and he was one of the, the very few that had a pancreatic um, transplant. So he had a kidney transplant, he had a pancreatic, but it, it that didn't work uh, unfortunately. Um, but I, I do recall that uh, more than a decade ago now, uh, being one of the first to receive that surgery in Toronto. So uh, you're right, we've we've come a long way, and advancements continue. Maybe I'll bring Rob into this. Um, Conversation to see how how have you viewed insulin and diabetes treatments evolve since the beginning of your practice and and some of the things that you've been able to accomplish?
2: Oh, that's a really interesting question. It's going to kind of date me a little bit. Uh, I've been practicing for quite a while. So uh, I've actually seen the advent of human insulins, I've seen the advent, you know, the introduction of DPP4s, uh, Genuvia. Uh, came on board, uh, when I first started working, uh, to have a blood glucose meter, uh, meaning you had to be certified to teach somebody. And in order for the person to actually use one, they actually had to be certified to be using one. And the meters at that time were running anywhere from two to $300. And interesting enough, the strip prices really haven't changed very much. Um, so, you know, like Susie was saying, it's, it's kind of exciting to be in this era of diabetes management our therapies have really grown and improved. Uh, you know the insulins are much more easier to use, uh, much more predictable, much more or less likely to cause hypoglycemia. Uh, our oral agents are much more effective in protecting the organs that are affected by, uh, by diabetes over long term. Um, and the biggest thing is um, as you mentioned is access that you know as a certified diabetes educator and a pharmacist we get frustrated because we see the real, excellent products and excellent therapies that we have and then we turn around and we see that there's sometimes limited access that we can't use them in certain people just because of financial issues or by insurance coverage issues so you know if i had to wrap it up in a real short term it's it's been a remarkable journey i mean you know i've been doing this for quite a while uh you know to see the evolution of insulins and monitoring to where we're getting Uh, real-time glucose monitoring now, or interstitial glucose monitoring. It's just been a remarkable journey, and the tools that we have in our toolbox right now are fantastic. It's just being able to have them accessible to the people that really could use them uh, to help prevent and delay the complications of people with diabetes.
0: I find it remarkable that there still are financial barriers, given what we know of the financial impact to both employers and Privately sponsored uh, benefit programs to the public healthcare system, you would think that those uh, business cases would be very strong to cover for all the things that are needed to re- reduce the uh, not only financial, but the patient impact um, across the spectrum of the healthcare system. But I guess we still have uh, a ways to go when it comes to coverage, uh, both from a public plan and private plan perspective. But I'm going to stay with you, Rob, and, and just see if you have any specific examples of patient interventions that significantly improve the life of someone with diabetes. Um, maybe walk us through a, a scenario where um, these things have
2: uh,
0: really improved uh, an individual's um, life when living with diabetes. That.
2: But- that's a kind of a harder question for me to answer because I, my practice has evolved. So, uh, you know, I spent 27 years behind the counter and then, uh, the last 14 years I've kind of moved away and, and I'm actually working within physician's offices as well as dispensing. Um, you know, some of the ones that really stick out, uh, you know, I had the, the typical older gentleman who was a, a type one, very, uh, definition of brittle. Uh, diabetes, who, you know, is having, you know, up to 15 or 16 lows in a month uh, and not being able to function. And unfortunately, we just lost him last month, Um, you know, but he lived a reasonable last eight or nine years and was able to do a lot more just because of being a little bit more, more safer and using some of the tools that we had to get him there. Uh, You know, other people that I can recall is that sometimes when I see them, their A1Cs are uh you know up in the double digits uh i'm dealing with one right now whose last a1c was 14 percent uh and the normal we're looking for is uh, 6.5 to 7 percent and you know just by a simple intervention and education and a lot of reinforcement uh, the diabetes distress the counseling uh you know making sure that they understand that you know there's a team involved uh you know i'm pretty sure what i'm seeing for numbers now is getting our a1c back down you know below eight percent which you know that's a remarkable move in the last three or four months uh, a lot of times it's just success in getting access getting people connected to coverage and services um, you know there's hundreds of those and it's really hard to pick out one in particular uh, there is one that i'm thinking of that you know actually just didn't take any medication at all just because she couldn't afford anything uh, and it had to do a lot of hand holding to get them through the social development program to get them listed and she took it very seriously so when she actually got access um you know she was very careful in how she monitored and what medication she took and again her her glycemic control has been remarkable it's always been you know in the low sevens you know since we've done that and this has been over the last 10 or 12 years so in, in retrospect and i guess in perspective ways I'm, I'm thankful that i have those tools to try to you know reduce the cost to you know, to the country and to the province in terms of what the cost would be if these people weren't managed. So, uh, but on the more important part is the personal note, you know, when I think of that older gentleman, uh, it always brings a tear to my eye because, you know, he was really, really struggling and he didn't understand it. And, you know, he was trying to keep the best control he had, uh, but he couldn't live a life because every time he went out, he was having lows, Uh, you know, for the other lady that, you know, had a very high A1C. You know she couldn't hold down a job because she just didn't feel good she didn't understand what was going on Uh, she was almost thinking of ending her life because she didn't want to feel this way for the rest of her life Uh, and to see her remarkably turn around just because of giving her a little bit of background and a little bit of information really reinforces what the role of a pharmacist can do and help making those connections and providing that little bit of extra care uh, to get people on their way and most people once you get them going they're, they're pretty self-sufficient. They, you know the self-management's a key part, but it's it's hard. It's hard to, to manage diabetes. There's a lot going on, a lot of things coming at the person with diabetes. So being part of their team, especially being easily accessible as a pharmacist is really key
0: yeah it's the it's the patient stories that really resonate uh, when you talk about the impact to their everyday life and, and not being able to hold a job or uh, just feeling uh, ill all the time it, it's you know when you can turn that around uh, what a, an amazing uh, thing that is to be a part of the healthcare team and to have such a, an active role uh, as you said accessibility and and equity in that accessibility is so important not to have the barriers whether it's financial or or otherwise and i think it's also it's amazing to see the technology on the monitoring um, and the devices and and where we are today Um, less invasive more technology on smartphones and and i think all of those things are contributing to helping people better manage diabetes in their lives. Uh, Susie, I know you have lots of experiences uh, in your involvement in patient care with, with people that have diabetes. How has that evolved over the years? And uh, What are your predictions for the future of this care model?
1: How has, my, how has, how has uh, diabetes care evolved over the past 25 or past years? Well, I think I covered a little bit about it earlier, um, but I think that if we actually look back on um access to care i know we're going back to access but it's so true when you look at the cdes that were traditionally all, all they were generally nurses and dietitians and now we have so many more pharmacists that are cdes so we have the education we just have to reorganize our practices to make it so that we can not just be accessible, but give them that high quality care. And I guess if I could expand on Rob's original answer was, you know he was saying oh, that's a hard question for him to answer when you had asked him, um, if you could think of any uh, patient interventions that significantly improved. I mean, I know we came up with a lot of good ones, but honestly, if you asked me that question, it would be, oh my gosh, every every interaction that you do Even when you're checking a repeat on a DPP4, any DP uh, on a sulfonylurea, you have the opportunity to make a difference in somebody's life. It's it's like every opportunity is just there. Um, You know, it's, um, I think, on a very, uh, very easy kind of starting off, if you wanted to jump in and and support people with diabetes, it's like now with the new clinical practice, with the 2020 update um, for the clinical practice guidelines, we know people will have better, better clinical outcomes if we put certain people who are identified at high risk on the agents that provide cardiorenal protection. So if they need cardiorenal protection, if they've already had a heart attack or stroke, if they're over 60 and they have two or more risk factors for cardiovascular disease, you know, you can identify these people. They're generally, they've got some central obesity. They um, they would be on something for hypertensive medications and maybe a, a, a statin for cholesterol. You know that these people are at high risk. Make sure they're on the right agents that will confer cardiovascular protection. It's a simple recommendation to the primary care provider. You know, you've made a difference. Other things you can do are recognizing who needs Full immunizations, right? Start talking to them about. I mean, I know we're already talking about the COVID shots, the boosters, the need for that, the annual influenza. These are all things we do. But you're actually making a difference um, and improving health outcomes when you are identifying the people that really need um, and and would actually even better f- benefit from it even more than the general population. And then you can expand it further. Start talking to them about pneumococcal immunizations. Start talking to them about herpes zoster immunizations, and you have improved their clinical outcomes. So I don't know. I think uh, when I look at how has um, the involvement or how what what are my predictions for the future? I would love to see us move further into. not so much reactionary care. So to me, reactionary care is somebody comes in with a prescription for a um, I don't know a blood glucose monitoring device or um, a new agent for diabetes, and you and you take them under your wing and you start supporting them in diabetes care. That's excellent, right? That's what we that's what that's excellent. That's but to me, they've already been identified in the system. The other thing we could do is be proactive and recognize who's at risk of certain clinical conditions and then we could be helping them get earlier access to care so things like that i um we just both rob and i would would have just attended the diabetes canada conference so it's always nice to share little tidbits that you have learned and literally at the most recent um like literally it ended well today's monday was ended on friday um i attended a talk on obesity and as you know obesity and type 2 diabetes are very much linked to both cardio metabolic conditions and um there was always a talk on how do we help these people? And um, what was interesting is the speaker, Sean Wharton, who's a pharmacist before he became a medical doctor, who's awesome, um, he, he stated that until we can get CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy available, more accessible, that that's how we're going to help support so you know obviously we already are helping them hopefully with medical nutrition uh, therapy so medical nutrition therapy and encouraging them with physical activity but that's the thing we we already know these things and we're still not getting the same clinical outcomes so what else what else can we do and um, he had mentioned that cbt could be provided by all healthcare practitioners but i sort of said if you ask me what's my prediction for the future if i could I, my next step is, you know, this inspired me. My next step is I might go out and learn about cognitive behavioral therapy and figure out how I can provide this in my pharmacy.
0: Yeah, thanks for sharing that because I think the, there's just more to this than monitoring and and the treatment. There's there's so many other things that we can uh, deploy in terms of strategies to help people manage. And I think you've mentioned uh, a couple of them that are, are quite salient. Rob, I, I think maybe if you could build on that and some of the other care models that are evolving to help people.
2: Yeah, no, thanks. Um, uh, one of the things I found, you know, with uh, COVID is, you know, the building of the virtual Uh, context. It doesn't really replace the face-to-face or the being able to look at our our patients to help them. Uh, But I found it certainly moved uh, the profession ahead by about five to 10 years, uh, because all of a sudden, you know, we had to find ways of working around the certain systems. And, you know, if I was supposed to have a a meeting with a, a patient or a client, and all of a sudden, I couldn't, you know, having a virtual meeting actually was a reasonable replacement. Uh, They couldn't get into their diabetes centers. They couldn't get into their family physicians as well. Uh, You know, so actually being able to talk to them, you know, either through a platform like Zoom or, uh, you know, just over the phone, again, it's not perfect, uh, but it kind of forced a lot of companies and a lot of, you know, ways to manage, to advance themselves, to facilitate that. So the patients that were used to emails were able to get some information that way that they could look through. Uh, you know, being able to contact them at their leisure and not have them travel actually opened the door for some people that may not have come in for care at some point. Um, You know, so we're we're probably looking at, you know, a hybrid in the future of some sort. You know, the corner pharmacy is always going to be there, you know, face to face, you know, the patients know us, uh, they know who to go talk to. And in my particular practice, just having that ability now to you know, if I can't get those persons in, maybe I can reach through them to a virtual standpoint. And I found that's really advanced over the last year to where it's actually part of my day-to-day practice now.
0: The hybrid model of care, I think, makes a lot of sense. And we've seen in in a lot of ways during the pandemic, the adoption and and perhaps uh is, Technology has been there. Virtual care has been there for some time, and and we've seen different service levels with respect to home deliveries and taking more uh, care to where the people are, um, which doesn't always speak to a particular location. And virtual uh, enables that, that care model to be more mobile. And I think coming out of the pandemic, our next great healthcare crisis is going to be the lack of early detection and screening because of access issues in the healthcare system and a a system that, you know, has capacity challenges. And and certainly when you look at our traditional model of hospital care and primary care and, and medication management, those barriers and fault lines were exposed during the pandemic. So whether it's cancers or chronic diseases, plus on top of that, as we see, I think we're going to see much more instances of that. Later on in 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 the detection, but also you know it, it's people that um, perhaps uh, because of the pandemic, you know, you're going to see diet and and other lifestyle challenges. We're seeing that with substance abuse and addiction and mental health. So many things that can be related back to uh, and sometimes connected to a particular chronic disease. And I don't think diabetes is any different from that perspective. So we're, we're as we emerge from this, we're going to see so many other challenges and it's going to increase the need for different ways to get to people uh, and to help them manage their their conditions and our system has never been perfect and it probably never will be when it comes to its interconnectedness between healthcare providers but what have you seen that's a positive susie in terms of how you work with other healthcare practitioners to assist patients with diabetes do you see that we're making progress and do you see areas where we can improve in that area.
1: I definitely see progress, and that is an exciting um, situation. Rob says how he's dating himself. I guess I'm dating myself, too. When we when we first started practicing, you know, it was a very hierarchical system. But I do feel the new grads are certainly recognizing the value of the community pharmacist. And to give you an example, during the time of COVID, when we, you know, the primary care providers had often uh, shut down as well as, as they're temporarily closed down and weren't seeing people as well as were diabetes um, education programs and community pharmacies stayed open they were referring people to me that should have been in the emergency department they actually would pick up the phone and the the physicians were calling me and saying you know this person should go to the emerge but we're really going to try as much as we can to keep her out um and literally these people were at high risk of an acute hyperglycemic crisis that really should have been managed, would have typically been managed in an emergency department. And through COVID, and just like Rob said, through the ability to um, have access to the pharmacist and, and, a, and a video platform, because I would ask them which way they wanted to go at the time we were allowed, you know, Zoom, Skype, FaceTime, whatever they wanted. And so it was very um, patient access started them on insulin and they were able to stay safe in their home it's it's exciting how those types of things and that was all interprofessional communication so i do feel that we've had a lot of positives that came out of covid and i'm hoping that a lot of that will maintain you know we we, we don't want to the system to be you know there's always ways that you can abuse the system later on but right now there were many ways in which patients um, there was patient access um, increased through the virtual space, um, but I think also if you were to ask me, how did um, you know the the interprofessional collaboration? I think a lot of people, uh, you know, over the years because of the amount of work that I've done through diabetes, and I actually think it's patients who would see me, who would then go back to their primary care provider and said, "Oh well, Susie said this," and that actually worked out well because then physicians or nurse practitioners would call me and um, ask me, you know, and, and would have an actual conversation about the person's man- management. So things like that have really improved, I feel, over time. And I feel like the more pharmacists that get involved and we're all pushing forward the, the needle, that, you know, it's, it's just a matter of time before, before we as true primary care providers are also very much part of that diabetes care team.
0: And that's encouraging to hear because i think that's what's good for the patients it's good for the system in terms of the uh, level of care and, and patient care absolutely
1: good for outcomes. the system the 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 spent the healthcare spending that would have happened um, by a pharmacist seeing a person with diabetes I, well I, I know we could go on and argue about whether we're being adequately compensated but it's definitely um, more cost-effective when we are able to provide that kind of care in the community pharmacy setting.
0: Absolutely, and and maybe while we're on that topic, to educate people who may not quite understand what it what it takes to become a certified diabetes educator and how how does it help you in your practice? Maybe you can just comment on that.
1: Sure. Um, so to become a diabetes educator, you actually have to. Um, be eligible, you have to have done Robbie might be able to expand on this was it I can't remember how many hours you have to be able to do it. But for me, when I first started, um, I actually just volunteered at my local diabetes education program, which was awesome, because then there's interprofessional collaboration. And that's how I got more and more um, appreciative of what they do and what I could do to support that kind of work in my community pharmacy. Rob, did you want to add on the amount of time that it took to?
2: Yep. to- yeah, thanks. Thanks, Susie. Um, yeah, I'm actually on the, the board of certification for diabetes educators. So, uh, a couple of interesting points is that pharmacists have really increased the percentage of people that get certified and recertify each year, uh, which is really encouraging seeing that develop over the years. Uh, but, you know, there is a certain process that has to be followed. Uh, so, in order to be a certified diabetes educator, You have to be registered and licensed with a regulatory body. Uh, The biggest challenge we have is that you have to have 800 hours of diabetes education over three years. And that seems to be a big barrier for pharmacists because they're kind of working and behind the counter. And they're wondering, well, how am I ever going to get 800 hours? Uh, You know, so if you ever go to the uh, website for the Certified Diabetes Educator Program, It'll give you some guidance. So basically, to, in order to get 800 hours, you look at a typical period of time and how much you would counsel on diabetes medications, or how much you would counsel on, you know, interpreting a meter, uh, or picking out a meter, or you know, even out in the OTC aisle, and, and you're giving them advice in terms of how to take a, you know, cough and cold medication with their diabetes. And if you look at the amount of time you actually spend over, you know, a couple of weeks or a month. Uh, you realize that that's not hard to do. So basically, you have to have, uh, you know, be under a licensed regulatory body. So like pharmacists would have their colleges. You have to have 800 hours of service, and then you can apply to write the exam. Um, When you're applying to write the exam, they will look at it to, you know, validate the, you know, credentials. Uh, So as long as it seems reasonable, you would be invited to challenge the exam. Uh, And every once in a while they'll audit just to make sure that the person is is being upfront. And what we're trying to avoid is just trying to have people that are newly graduating. uh, We want people to have a little bit more experience going into the exam because it covers all kinds of disciplines. So in order to become a CDE, we have to look at nurse practitioners and dietitians and nurses and pharmacists and physiotherapists and and physicians, and, and they all have to pass the same criteria. So we want people to have a little bit of experience Uh, before they actually challenge the exam that's where the 800 hours comes in but once you have the 800 hours it's just a matter of applying and it's uh, an exam that's written once a year and we've adapted to the virtual world as well so now we actually do our exam uh, online versus in person uh, and we're still trying to decide whether we'll go back to in person uh, because the online seems to be working so well
1: (laughs) that's nice to hear if I could add something to this, and Rob, I don't want to, because I do feel that when I wrote the CDE exam, I was an educator. It, it really was a, a nice, broad, and like you said, multidisciplinary. But I do want to um, emphasize that I feel as a, as a pharmacist, you actually don't have to be a CDE to be able to provide good quality diabetes care to, your, to people affected with diabetes. Just like family physicians, are, many of them are not cdes but they are providing good quality care so i don't want that to discourage you if you don't qualify with your 800 hours or whatever some people are just not good at writing exams you can still work with every person that comes in your doors and help them achieve better health outcomes
0: that's a great point uh, to emphasize the other uh, question i have for you susie is programs so designing chronic disease management uh, programs that are well funded, whether it's through the private um, employer plans or public plans, you know, is that necessary in order to provide these types of uh, patient care services? Uh, Can you design your own in a pharmacy by looking at your patient population and and knowledge base? Uh, Something like the MedCheck diabetes in, in Ontario, is that a helpful program? Or should we be building other programs or building on top of what we have?
1: Good questions. I'm going to just share with what I did, um, which for me was successful. Um, I literally said to myself, because I had worked in the um, diabetes education programs, and I also did diabetes education in family physicians offices, but I felt that the continuity was, um, was lacking when I was only in there, let's say once a month or whatever. So for me, doing it in my pharmacy was helpful. But what I ended up doing is I made my pharmacy I, I tried to make it very much like a primary care office. When somebody came in with a prescription for a new a new prescription for diabetes medication, a new prescription for a glucose monitoring uh, technology, my staff, my intake staff recognized this is a new prescription. And they said to them, you know, would you like to make an appointment to speak with our diabetes educator pharmacist? And appointments were booked. We had an a, a, in- pharmacy calendar. And essentially, we first started off by knowing that, let's say there's a nine to five pharmacist and like a one to eight pharmacist or whatever. So, you know that there's a little bit of overlap between one and five. There's going to be some suppers, breaks, whatever you want to cover. But you could book appointments during that overlap time. Or sometimes when you are maybe don't have that overlap, I if I worked nine to five, I said to them, I'm, I can see five. You know so you you found a way to book an, an a one an appointment an individualized appointment to give them that dedicated time and i made it so that i didn't book that appointment it was my support staff because i think that um sometimes by the time they they had the conversation to book the appointment they were already asking the questions and that wasn't helpful to me so i needed to have um support staff to book appointments for me and then when you started getting um the appointment-based model. Initially, it was my staff recognizing who needed an appointment and who should be offered an appointment. And over time, it became people coming in and saying, can I make an appointment to speak with the pharmacist? And those types of things, I think just that's how the program developed. And and that once you move to this appointment based model, you can then start doing anything like, you know, my certified respiratory educator, we started helping people with asthma, um, you know, more, more than the Typical ten minute counseling, which everybody does, and which we still did. But when we needed to give them that dedicated time, they recognized the value of it. And the nice thing about with virtual now, sometimes you don't have to do a specific. I'm going to call you at, you know, whatever. It was more like, you know, what I want to speak to you more about your medication. Can I call you later today? And people with cell phones and whatever else, it became a lot easier to be able to provide care. Um, yeah, just provide care.
0: What you're speaking to is the evolution of the practice um there's the medication management core dispensing services which still anchor the pharmaceutical care in the community but really changing the paradigm and how people access the service and the way to think about appointments versus walking in with a prescription and in and out type of scenario and i i think you're seeing the store uh, the pharmacy themselves redesign and how they do intake having the counseling rooms um, certainly through covid with the need to do testing and vaccinations and all the different services that tend to be uh, part of the now overall offering giving people a choice how they practice, but specific programs and tools to be able to identify, be it hypertension or um, looking at diabetes management and, and a host of other uh, chronic diseases. It's really changing the way uh, you're practicing.
1: Exactly, yeah, and giving better care, technically
0: hmm. Rob, maybe some observations from your perspective, uh, different part of the country. Um, how are the programs designed? Is there sort of a formality around them with funding? Is this something that evolves uh, with each pharmacist and their practice uniquely?
2: I think we look at the rest of the country with a little bit of jealousy, when we look at that, uh, we don't have a diabetes based program. So unfortunately, if we do a meds check type of program, Uh, It's just they're on multiple meds and we have no no venue to do follow-ups that would be reimbursed. Um, And I think when I looked at my particular practice, this is what happened, you know, probably close to 20 years ago, that uh, it it wasn't just the way things were done, was that I started doing more involvement with the clients and they came in. And I was getting referrals from other pharmacy and other family physicians. And sometimes the store structure didn't really support that to the point where they needed me more to dispense versus me more than to uh, provide diabetes education. So it kind of forced me to evolve my practice to where it is now. Um, So in order to have a structured program, it it would be very good. And I think things have come a long way, uh, you know, since I first started. So now when I look at a particular pharmacy, uh, if the pharmacy is based that they are supporting the people that are in there to provide the education the intake process, the, uh, the ability to have room and space and time uh, is more provided than it was a number of years ago. So, in order to try to pioneer that was just to try to get the value of the role of the pharmacist of diabetes care, number one, uh, and then to try to prove that. So, nowadays, uh, you know, if there's different programs available, unfortunately, we have to rely somewhat on industry to sometimes help with that, or sometimes research foundations will, will help you know, book a period of time where you want to try something out and see if there's a measurable difference. Uh, It's still different. So in this neck of the woods, uh, we kind of look at the rest of the country with, uh, again, uh, with an eye that, you know, we wish we had access to diabetes med checks. Uh, I think as a diabetes task force, we kind of recommended them. But, uh, you know, being a smaller province, sometimes it's a little harder getting these things funded and underway, even as a pilot project, because there's so many other things that may be uh, causing demand. Uh, you know, so our experience is probably a little less so, uh, but again, it depends on the the cooperation you have with the, the store that you're working with uh, and the environment you're working with that you can kind of promote that role uh, a little bit further.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how it evolves in different ways across the country and yet we're one country but many different systems and uh, funding mechanisms which always create some challenges uh, when it comes to the equity across the the country and and i think when i think uh, about health equity in general there's a really important topic that i want to unpack and get both of your perspectives on um, and, and it, it struck me when reading through the Uh, Diabetes Canada uh, and University of Manitoba report on incidences of type 2 diabetes that are found to be higher in individuals from Black, South Asian and children from First Nation communities. And, you know, when I think about socioeconomic status, when I think about the barriers to accessing health and the inequity that exists uh, even in our country... Uh, and across the the world. And we've seen that with the vaccine distribution and just how impactful that is um, when we don't get it right in terms of COVID vaccines. But I think it's also germane to this conversation around diabetes management. You know, how are we working through as healthcare practitioners to customize the treatments for patients from these communities and address any of these disparities? Um, This is a big topic, uh, and I'm just interested in in some of your experiences, having served a variety of different communities and and seeing some of those inequities on the front line. Maybe I'll start with you, Susie.
1: So my community, we're quite blessed in that it's still a small town community, and we do have an indigenous population, an indigenous um, uh, community, just a little bit north of us and they also have access so it's alderville health alderville and they have an alderville health services so it's again um, a lot of interprofessional or multidisciplinary collaboration but that has also been um, lovely in that we as community pharmacists can uh, can collaborate not only with the person's primary care provider and specialists there's the diabetes education team and now there's also the um, indigenous health services. So you'd want to make sure that you know you get it. You you need to find out in your community what resources are available to like, to your patients, and then find out what services they they want to access. I've actually had situations where you know people have come in and they've heard things about me, and so they wanted to work with me. And I think great. I'd love to help you. You know uh, we follow the clinical practice guidelines, which is a lot about individualization, but it's nice that they tell us we want to get you to target in three months. And if I can't get you to target in three months, we need to expand the team. And that's when it's really important to recognize who else is available in the community and tell them if I can get you to target and we have improved clinical outcomes or we're on the path to improved clinical outcomes early, great, but if not, we do want to, you know, expand that team. Um, But I I think that uh, when it comes down to how do we, that. I, I think the first thing is to recognize it. Um, you know, a, a lot of these these things are there is that bias or there's a, the need to recognize um, their own, everybody, everybody has their own personal preferences about how they choose to live and what their capacity is for self-management at that particular time. And so obviously that's a moving target and we need to work with what, what works for them. Um, And so a lot of that is actually all it's 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 nicely also in the clinical practice guidelines to a certain extent about supporting individualized care i think if we look at specifically first nations one of the ways community pharmacies can support them is the nihb program is a national program community pharmacists we want to make sure that we're aware of who qualifies for nihb and how do we access the services available to them. So for example, you know, we have somebody who's, let's say, under 24 years old, we would have access to OHIP Plus, but they also have access to NIHB if they qualify. And through NIHB, there's a whole variety, a whole new program that has, you know, access to blood glucose monitoring or whatever else it is, and a certain agents that they might not have had been available through the OHIP Plus program. And some of them aren't necessarily as easy as take the DIN and process the prescription. Some of them you do have to apply for prior approval. So I think it behooves us if we want to support these people as best we can, we need to learn about the NIHB program, so you can easily just Google that. Make sure you're aware about the prior approval forms and help these people fill out the forms because through that, you often can know the criteria for coverage. So don't waste their time if you know that they don't qualify. But if they qualify, make sure the form is filled out properly because if not, you know, you've know you already delayed care because the primary care provider might not have actually um, properly filled out the form. And, and if you can review it and you know what they missed and the person actually does qualify, then write. make sure it gets filled out properly. I don't know if that if that's a you know hopefully that gives some little tidbits of how we can help people oh it
0: does those are great the other thing i was
1: going to say is just also learning about community resources so i did talk about finding out if you have access to um you know the their indigenous services and things like that but i know in my town when i had people who had difficulty with paying we did have local resources like the salvation army and there's Lions clubs and other little and Provost clubs, and I shouldn't say little, other Provost clubs and things like that. So find out, um, like I think the Lions Club had, has a, um, a target or, or you know a goal of helping support or reduce blindness. And because diabetes um, has, is a large contributor to, to causing eyes, eye vision loss, that um, they will support people with diabetes. So things like that is, is helpful to reach out to your local services.
0: Thanks for sharing those insights, some really great tips. Uh, Rob, from your perspective, uh, how do we go about addressing these gaps?
2: Well, I think uh, if you look at New Brunswick, we, we have a very large indigenous population that's kind of spread out all through the country or through the province. Um, and I've been involved with the, Uni- the Union of Indians trying to provide diabetes education to these groups. And uh, we're actually just starting a couple of different pilot projects as we speak Uh, And I think what, you know, a community pharmacist that's never been involved with a a cultural group is that you really have to respect that they may have a different perspective on medicines and cultures and how we actually apply today's medicine to it. So, you know, normally if I'm going into an an indigenous meeting or, you know, providing education, uh, you know, within their realm, I I have to be actually welcomed by the elder. Uh, I have to be smoked in in terms of being part of the meeting. Uh, I have to show respect to the medicine person that's on board and saying that I'm here to help and work with them. Uh, and really, the issue is just getting them, because we're considered almost like an outsider because we have traditional medicine is is not their traditional medicine. So all of a sudden, we're using different approaches. And it's also good when you have a partnership with an indigenous nurse that may you know help you know make that transition a little bit easier and the biggest challenge i have is is compliance so sometimes even when we get some things working um, is keeping them on so sometimes you know having that follow-up to make sure that they understand the benefit going forward that it's going to help them has been a real challenge Um, so within the indigenous population it's it's a very unique population they have certain processes to follow and i don't think that's any different than any other culture to be honest with you but just because uh, there's more Indigenous people in New Brunswick, that I'm more exposed to that, uh, you know. So taking the time and going to where they actually practice and live, uh, you know, actually seems to be helpful and be understanding a little bit more about what they need or how I need to approach it uh, is kind of unique. It was a very, very eye-opening experience for the first couple of years. Uh, so hopefully, with this pilot project, we'll be able to pr- process it a little even further
0: yeah thanks for for sharing that because you're right there there's uniqueness to each culture and and different gaps and and barriers it's all the time we have today for episode 13 of our pharmacist podcast uh, today but I did want to thank both of you for sharing your insights we covered a, a broad range of topics within diabetes management and and how we can optimally provide care for patients really across the continuum of disease states. And I I think some of the the options around virtual care and how you can customize your practice to your patient populations is extremely valuable. I also want to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors again, BD and Essentia. I would encourage uh, all of our listeners to go to our website. We have an insulin campaign page at opatoday.com forward slash 100 years of insulin. Uh, And we'll continue these important conversations about how do we best leverage pharmacy care in the community uh, and, and continue to unpack some of the opportunities that exist within our practice. So thanks again for joining us. And until next time, be safe.